Hello and welcome to this edition of The Vasey View. This is the tech podcast where I, Ed Vasey, the former technology minister, David Cameron, spend some time talking to people that interest me. And what interests me is developments in tech, but particularly how it affects public policy. So my two guests today are literally perfect for me. The first one is Phaedra Krusos, who is currently the Chief Strategy Officer of the Libra Group, which is a Greek conglomerate. But without wishing to be rude about the Libra Group, I want to say that the reason I've asked her on is because she used to be the Technology Officer for the Obama administration. She was responsible for scaling some of the administration's most successful digital initiatives, including a 200-person digital services team, a $60 million portfolio of technology products and programs and the Presidential Innovation Fellowship Program. She also founded the Technology Transformation Service, which served as the foundation of that government's ongoing digital transformation. And with her as well is a very old friend of mine, Dan Korski, who was David Cameron's technology advisor, which means he spent most of the time making sure that I was cut out of the picture. (laughs) And he worked uh, in number 10 Downing Street driving government digital transformation. And even more annoyingly, after he left public service, he founded an incredibly successful VC firm called Public, which has effectively created in the UK the GovTech sector. We might at the end, although I don't really want to because it will help Dan's ego, we might at the end talk a bit about the huge success of Public and the kind of companies he's seeing springing up in the GovTech sector, because that is very interesting. And I'm very mindful as well that on this podcast, we have a lot of business listeners. And I do feel very strongly that some of the lessons that government have learned in digital transformation are equally important for businesses that are struggling with the same issues. So hopefully, if you don't work in government, you'll still find a lot that will interest you. I'm sure you will find a lot that will interest you. Pedro, let's start with you. Thank you so much for coming on. You're in Washington, D.C. at the moment. Tell us a bit. Let's start just by talking about the work you did with President Obama, what that was like. Uh, happy to. It began with a, with a debacle, actually. So it began with healthcare.gov and the demise of healthcare.gov. For of those course. of you that may not know about this, the president had a signature healthcare initiative that was accompanied by a website where people would sign up for healthcare. And after three years of building this, this singular website, and spending around 60 million plus dollars building that website, it crashed on the very first day. And that was the start of the government, the US government's awakening when it came to technology. The president realized quickly that um, something needed to be done. He asked his senior advisor at the time, Todd Park, to bring in a team of technologists to repair the website. And they were, they were able to do this, small team was able to do this in, one, in about a month, sitting in the basement of HHS ordering pizza at a very low cost to the taxpayer. And that contrast just started a storm of change in the US government. We began to recruit for technologists in two departments. One was the United States Digital Service, which was kind of a firefighting team at the White House and had 60 elite technologists by the time I left. And the other was ATNF, which was a 
a team of technology builders and procurement officers that sat in centrally at an agency called the General Services Administration, which is kind of like the COO of the U.S. government. That's the team that I had the good fortune to lead. I joined when um, 18F was about 12 people. And by the time I left, we had over 200 technologists, user experience designers, very much fashioned after your GDS, which was a huge inspiration for us. I remember the call going out from Obama. It was like a sort of, you know, almost a mercy mission. Come and help the government if you're a technologist. Come and give up your career for a year or two and come and help us sort this out. Exactly. Exactly. We called it Peace Corps for Geeks. You know, it was like if you were a tech nerd and wanted to serve somehow, didn't want to go to the military or you didn't want to go to the Peace Corps, like this was your way to to give back to your country. It was a great uh, rallying call for people and it brought some brilliant folks in. It did give us a little bit of some white knight syndrome where people would come in to save the day. The people that were the most successful were the ones that had a lot of empathy for what the government was going through and could understand kind of that some of the policies and procedures in government, some of the bureaucracy was there for a reason and they could navigate that. But you, you before you joined government, were a successful tech entrepreneur and this was your first job in government. Did you find it surprising, as I do, you know, we all are in awe of Silicon Valley and yet here is the government, you know, of the country where Silicon Valley is flourishing that basically was nowhere when it came to tech before you guys got involved. It was amazing. I mean, people, we'd recruit people to come in and we'd give them kind of all kinds of caveats, like what you're coming into, you won't, you know, it's different, et cetera. People would say it was like being in a time machine going back to the 1990s. They <laughs> wanted the they wanted the collaboration tools. They wanted to be on Slack. They wanted to be on Google Drive. They couldn't understand why they couldn't use some of the cloud services they had used. So we brought in all these people and it actually gave us this huge eye-opening experience of, okay, now we have the people, we don't have the tools to give them. And that led us down a, a, you know, a long rabbit hole. How do we change procurement? Um, which was, it's such an unsexy topic, but in the end is vital for the government's tech transformation. How do we change procurement to be able to get the tools into the hands of the people that know technology so they can start fixing things and modernizing throughout government? So that was a really interesting experience and one that I wouldn't have gone down that rabbit hole otherwise. <laughs> I wanted to just bring Dan in because, Fedra, you mentioned the GDS, which stands for the Government Digital Service, which is the British equivalent. And there was a period of time when, Dan, we in the UK felt unbelievably smug because <laughs> of, you know, it was kind of one of the few times when the Americans were coming to us to say, we have this phrase in the UK, Coles to Newcastle, you know, the, the kind of, in theory, most technologically advanced nation in the world, its government was coming to us saying, how do you do this stuff? How we, uh, for the first half of the 2010s, we were, we were kings when it came to technology and government. <laughs> Digital kings, and not just the Americans. I mean, a lot of things that were happening around the world at the time, in Canada, Australia, so on, was modeled on some of the things that the, the British government was doing at the time, whether it was... Um, the total redesign of the the main government portal, gov, um, UK, or the way that we were op- opening up data, or indeed the way that we were attracting, you know, high caliber talent in the way that the Obama administration, as, as Phaedra has laid out, did a little bit later. But I think we were a bit ahead of the curve. We attracted some incredibly talented people who came from industry in order to, uh, you know, to sign up to, to the flag. And, and great, great things happened. Now, of course, we also had, you know, health.gov problems perhaps they weren't as large they weren't as politically contentious but they, they were there nonetheless you know we you'll recall that we amidst all the progress struggled with rural rural payments at some point and really had a difficult yeah. time 
making life easier for farmers to fill in the various different the different boxes and 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 and, and ticks and so on and, and and it was an opportunity both to show what we could do if we put our minds to it but also how there's always more to do in government um you fix one thing and and, and another pops up and, and just frankly listening to, to you Phaedra, i'm struck by the fact that in the period that you're working for 40 years organizations like the cia have invested in technology uh, and in the process supporting and buying some extraordinary innovations and yet in other parts of government very little has changed and that that probably is a is an apt parable for how governments operate even where great things happen large swathes will be untouched by reform and innovation it's a great point because you know we all uh, again bang on about darpa in the us which is you know the defense agency mm-hmm. as being a kind of primer for technology innovation in the us so on the one hand government is seen as absolutely essential and on the other hand, it's seen as completely ancient and kind of running on steam. I couldn't agree with you more. We definitely have national security kind of innovation, but we haven't had innovation in the way the government runs. And the key to, to solving some of the biggest problems we have today, and the Biden administration, I think, recognizes this, is to solving COVID, to solving the economic crisis here in the United States, is to have a government that runs efficiently and effectively. And technology is you know, clearly the answer to that. Give our listeners, uh, Fedra, uh, an, an indication of what the direction uh, the Biden administration is going to take. Who, who are the key players and, and what, what do you kind of think their strategy is going to be? Well, I think one of when it comes to the tech transformation of government, the Biden team has taken the tracks that the Obama team laid down and is doubling down on them in a way that we would never even even dreamed of. Before I left the government in the last year or so, we accomplished two things. One is we set up a center for the government's digital innovation. Um, and that's kind of like our version of GDS. We needed a formal org. It couldn't be just kind of these disparate groups running amok. We had to have a formal org that Congress could understand and provide funding to and have the structure there that all of the rest of government had. So we created the Technology Transformation Service as kind of our hub. And then we wrote um, the Modernizing Government Technology Act which created a VC style, venture capital style, iterative, know your kind of fast funding source for technology's transformation. And then we watched the Trump administration come in and while they didn't dismantle these things, they didn't kind of prop them up and provide them with the funding they needed. And so we kind of held our breath for four years as we saw the government decline when it comes to technology modernization. And then to see the Biden administration come in and request $300 million for the technology service as overhead, and then $9 billion through the venture capital style fund really kind of will propel the government's tech transformation in a really well-funded, thoughtful way. Makes you envious, doesn't it, Ed? You know, listening to Pedro talk about those sums. (laughs) I mean, we we never had any kind of money like that, did we? (laughs) Who's going to drive the transformation under Biden? Well, there's still there's still several groups in under Biden, right? So the, there's the United States Digital Service, which was given, to, which has been proposed to be given two hundred million dollars, which is kind of the firefighting group at the White House. There is uh, three hundred million for the Technology Transformation Service, which which holds eighteen F, which I spoke about, that builder procurement group. There's nine billion for this VC style fund, which interestingly enough is not controlled by one person, but by an investment committee of people across government which is unique and important. And then there's also another $700 million for CISA at, at Homeland Security, which is where cybersecurity rests. Are, are there any uh, personalities? I mean, you mentioned, I think the chief of staff comes from a venture background. 
Yeah, so I think we used to call it TQ instead of IQ or EQ. What is your technology quotient? How much do you understand technology? And we found that the political appointees that have been put in place so far, and they haven't all been named yet, have very high TQ. So Ron Klain, who is the chief of staff to Biden, and arguably you know one of the most important people in the government, uh, spent the last four years at Steve Case's Revolution Ventures, working on venture capital. The head of the um, the federal procurement for all of the federal government that procures about $90 billion in tech every year is a former federal CIO and an executive at Fox. So you have just across the government, you have people in positions that aren't that don't have the world word technology in the title that are technologists. And that's super cool. That is brilliant. And Dan, Fedra mentioned that uh, kind of technology held its breath during the Trump administration. And I would obviously not come close to comparing the brilliant Boris Johnson to Trump. But I do have a nagging feeling that in the UK, and maybe we're party pre a bit, since Cameron, technology has <laughs> slightly held its breath in the UK. Is that the feeling you get? I think that's fair, but I don't think it's sufficient to look at what the Johnson administration is doing. I think we have to go back to Theresa May um, because I think the rot set in then. I think it was clear that there wasn't the same kind of enthusiasm and excitement about the possibilities that technology both offered business and the sector. There was a, a lot of focus, obviously, on the EU negotiations, but there was a sort of a, a more sinister sense that, that the whole technology agenda probably was only relevant to a small number of metropolitan elites, as opposed to what the reality is. It is a fundamental transformation of, of every sector, something we've seen in spades, obviously, during this pandemic, but, but was obvious before. So we probably have to go back and say that that since David Cameron left office, there has been a sort of market disinterest in this agenda. And the irony is that Boris Johnson is, in many ways, ideally placed to you know pick this up. You know, as mayor, he was very enthusiastic, very pro-technology, always supportive of the ecosystem, interested in what technology could do for for the city. And, and we know he's come in the government wanting to sort of the UK into the, an innovation nation. So. It ought to be a glorious moment for technology. Um, and it's great to see that, that, that his government has finally appointed the key kind of digital personnel, the chief digital officer, the head of the new head of GDS, and even the chair of, of all the government's digital work, uh, the chief digital officer uh, from Lego Group. So all the pieces are beginning to come back into place. And that's very much my hope um, that we'll see, see a different kind of attitude now. The irony is we took so much from GDS and what you had done in your administration. We created login.gov with the help of your verify.gov.uk team coming over to the U.S. and sitting down with our engineers and walking us through code, created cloud.gov in the image of some of the things you had created at GDS. So GDS and some of the, the strides you had made early on sparked a lot of what we did at, in the U.S. and I know all over the world. Canada, Australia, and other countries as well. So it's interesting to, to hear that it's that it's stagnated after the kind of major leap forward. It is depressing. But it's a quite a nice segue into the idea because you're both co-authors with others of a pamphlet on smarter government, and we put the link in the blurb for this podcast if people want to click and read the document. It's only about 20 pages and it's got 60 recommendations. So it goes into quite some granular detail. But I want to talk about the big idea, which is really what we've been 
dancing around them, which is also, I think, relevant to people listening who, as I said earlier, are running businesses and thinking about digital transformation. Because, you know, Dan said that under Prime Minister Theresa May, there was a feeling that kind of this whole tech agenda was a bit metropolitan, uh, liberal elite. But for me, it is about the fundamental transformation of how government interacts with its citizens. It's about not just digital being added on. It's about fundamentally reimagining the processes of how you go about getting a service from government. So perhaps starting with Dan, how would you articulate the big idea? How do you how do you create a truly digital government? It's a big question, but I think I think you've you've sort of done it for me, right? Because what you've basically said is design government with the citizen in mind, not with the legacy or the old institutions that you inherit. And ensure that technology is part of that reimagining rather than something you bolt on at the end after you have decided what you're going to do. And that really, in a way, is the big idea that we have an opportunity, given the tools that technology offers us, to totally rethink how we deliver public services. And we should do so. And I'll get into kind of what are the key steps we need to take. But the whole point is not to think of technology as that thing somebody else does down the corridor in the small cubbyhole, a, a sort of team that you call on to go and do that digital thing once you've decided what's really important. You know, th- that's not the way to go about this. And too often government still does that. And and so Phaedra and I and others were animated by the mission to, to rethink what government ought to, to do in order to be able to deliver those kind of services in this in this commission on smart government that you that you mentioned. And really, I mean, I, I start out by saying, you know, we've got to move to the cloud. You know, government needs to, as far as it's possible, move away from, you know, on-prem uh, architecture towards towards a modern cloud infrastructure, which basically means on-demand computer, you know, computer system resources, so that it becomes much easier to to evolve the service. You know, a citizen doesn't necessarily care whether it's a department, a local government, the NHS, or any other acronymed body that delivers a service. They just want a service. And we've got to start from that position. And in order to do that, we've got to move a hell of a lot more into the cloud. But but that's that's not really enough. We, we have to agree what are the sort of canonical lists of information, the land registry, the electoral, that, uh, that is required in order for government to build those services anew. And what we're suggesting in the report is not just... A, a, a kind of general framework, we're saying, let's start in a number of areas that cut across government responsibilities and show how government can deliver differently. And what we've particularly focused on is how we can help uh, business support, uh, land and development, and early years. These are three big government areas, but where this, the government operates through many different tentacles and arms, each one of which was created years ago, each one of which has a different uh, system of, of development, whether it's for offering you export credit or R&D or ensuring that you pay your tax. No, the recipient in all these cases is is just a business somewhere. And so we suggest that, that we take these big principles about moving things to the cloud, operating open APIs, having uh, canonical registers, and we, we apply that to these three areas where we, we encourage government to totally rethink using these technological means what services need to look like. It is incredibly difficult, partly because obviously government can never switch off. And I, I guess the parallel with business is business thinks I'm getting revenue doing my business this way. I, I don't have the time or inclination to kind of switch 
to a completely digital service. I don't want to switch off my legacy system. And I guess the obstacle in government is always, you know, we can't shut down early years education while we build the digital alternative. You know, do we have the resources to do all this in parallel, as it were? I think it's a really great challenge, but I don't think it's impossible to do. And in fact, I would go further and say that if you don't do it, you're more likely to suffer and struggle to deliver the sort of services that citizens have become accustomed to, whether they order things on ASOS or Deliveroo or Uber or what it might be. You know, citizens have gotten accustomed to a certain way of receiving services. And the longer the, it takes for government to upgrade itself, the greater disaffection there will be in the nature of services, which will create much bigger problems in the end. So I would argue that uh, you can't afford not to do it. The question is then, you know, how? And the reality is in order to do that, you need to get uh, a bunch of things right. You know, we have to, to your point, allocate resources like the U.S. is doing now, sufficient resources, but also do so in a way that allows people to use that money. In the British government, we're very good at giving money in various sort of small packets and, and telling people you can only use it for uh, capital expenditure or, or operating expenses, wh- whatever it is. And, and that makes it very hard in a, in a modern world to, to allocate resources. Uh, and the second thing is we've got to get the people right. Uh, and I love this concept that Fader was talking about, about TQ, not IQ, but TQ, what's your technical intelligence? And what we've tried to say in the report is we need to get better at hiring the right people, training them, incentivizing them. And today you can rise to the top of the bureaucratic tree, knowing absolutely nothing about technology, even though you are responsible for billions yeah. of pounds of technology spend. And, and that's never going to lead to great outcomes. Fedra, I mean, I guess the US has a similar challenge. I mean, is there an added complication in terms of the relationship between federal government and state government, at least in the UK, with a highly centralized and quite dominant state, we can in in effect change things from the center and affect things locally pretty quickly. Did, Did you come across that when you were working in government? There's certainly an added complication because the, the US government is a, is a collection of federated states and a lot of the user interaction between the citizen and the government happens at the state and local level, whether it's getting your driver's license or getting certain benefits. And so when we created login.gov, for example, the equivalent of your verify.gov.uk, we have 18 million users, active users monthly today on it, but it still hasn't been able to be procured by state and local governments because of the some bureaucratic barriers about creating something at the federal level and then selling it at the local level. So there's a lot of barriers to break down to be able to take some of the modernization that's happening at the federal level and then trickle it down to the state and local level or gift it to the state and local level. Once the Obama administration ended, a lot of the folks that we had recruited um, with high TQ ended up going back to their home states and starting uh, digital services. So the Colorado Digital Service, the Canadian Digital Service, the New York CTO. We have a lot of people kind of planted like seeds all around the the country. So we did have that great effect of when we disbanded, everyone went home and brought it with them. So it wasn't a formal transition of knowledge and tech, but people went and with with them came information and tech and all kinds of learnings. And did you find kind of what Dan alluded to, which is even at the federal level, trying to get, you know, the citizen doesn't care what the acronym is or what the department is, they just want a service. But doing anything, bringing up a child can involve multiple different agencies having a role. How do you cross those bizarre barriers that sit between different departments? Absolutely. And not just different agencies, but to your point, different departments within agencies. So when we 
when we created login.gov, we first worked with the with the Veterans Administration, which is an agency that employs 500,000 people and takes care of all of our veterans. They had 25 user and authentication logins that they had created. So if you were a veteran, you could potentially, if you were eligible for all the different services, could be signing in and out 25 times to get your veterans benefits, not to mention wow. other benefits from other agencies. So it's not just a user, and it's not just a user experience problem, but it's also a security problem, and it's a spend problem. The VA paid for 25 proprietary user login and authentication platforms, and they need to maintain the security for all those 25. There's a lot of there's a lot to be done. Key to this is creating these kind of interoperable, secure kind of building blocks, technology building blocks that all of government can use and getting them down to the state and local level too. Can I jump on this, Ed? Because I think uh, yeah. it's important for your listeners not to think that this is a unique US problem. It is a massive concern in the UK. We have a very asymmetric constitutional settlement, by which I mean we have devolved some digital authorities to some uh, nations. We have devolved some digital responsibilities to combined authorities and not others, and some local governments are doing a lot and some are not. And and so we actually have a an incredibly complex digital quilt in the UK. And unfortunately, that quilt has sort of been overlaying a system of underskilled people, you know, both elected councillors and mayors, but also officers in local government. So, and unfortunately, it has not been a priority for, for central government to change that until quite recently. You know, there is not, there's not been a drive to say, how do we upskill local digital capabilities at the rate that we need to in order for them to be able to deliver. And the other thing to say, and that I think is the parallel to, to Phaedra's point, which is we have a myriad of systems here too. You have your Camden digital identity, much as you will have an NHS number and possibly a home office number and so on and so forth. And we have not yet found a way in which to create a federated I uh, say in a system where you can log in once and it'll work wherever you, you might want to use it. Verify the the government sort of flagship identity scheme has not really become the, the be all and end all of all ID and login systems. So it's just simply to say that we have a similar challenge. And I think the final thing to say is, as big debates emerge now in the UK about the integrity of the union, you know, both in reference to Northern Ireland, Scotland, but potentially also Wales, there is this sort of interesting question, what's the digital infrastructure that we all have in common? Or that what's the interoperable digital infrastructure? If you you know, work or travel within the United Kingdom, but in and out of some of its constituent nations. And that's just not been an area uh, successive governments have paid a lot of attention to. So can we just talk briefly about um, the kind of difference between the public and private sector or how government works with the private sector of tech? And I won't use the word procurement because it'll send our listeners to sleep. But I think there's a difference. Initially, there was a sort of entrepreneurial approach where government kind of chucked stuff out to the private sector like data. So you suddenly had for example, uh, lots of transport apps, which I still use religiously, you know, when I'm going to get catch my bus. I thank you every day that transport data has been made available and you get these great apps that will tell you when your bus is due. That's one thing. And then there's, but there's the contrast, which is where you actually kind of procure with a company to build, you mentioned earlier, Dan, the rural payments, you know, how you make payments available to farmers. The latter always seems to go wrong. It always seems to go over budget not provide the service that the customer actually wants? How do you cure that? Well, look, I think there are a bunch of different things that you can do. I mean, first of all, 
we've got to make it easier for fast-moving, innovative companies to get a, a slice of this. They are able to move faster and build better than large incumbent legacy providers. And we think in the commission that we ought to solve that by setting some kind of target on technology spend. You know, 10% of all technology spend, we think, should go to startups in order to sort of you know, provide a real innovation jolt to, to the system. And the second thing to do is government needs to be much smarter about what it should buy because it's commodity technology and what it should build itself. Right now, government is too keen to build stuff itself or hire consultants who can build stuff in partnership with them when, in yeah. fact, they ought to have gone out and bought some commodity technology. I and mean, you don't you don't equip your house with, with desks and decide I'm going to build my own desk from my own specifications yeah. from the start, right? You say, no, I'll go down to Heels or Ikea or wherever you might want to shop. Uh, and government needs yeah. to be a bit savvy. But at the same time, in your house, you will have potential one or two bespoke uh, you know, pieces of furniture. And, and, and that may be because of the particular size and wonkiness of your walls or your taste or whatever it is. And government's the same. You know, government will have some bespoke requirements. Right now, there's uh, too much category confusion between the two. And I think that's that's the first you know, step to take. You know, it, it's interesting that I think that procurement played a very important role in everything we did because we realized that we couldn't do it alone. And I used to give a story when I was in the in the Obama administration. My first company was a health tech company, and it was uh, sold ten months after launch. Between in those first ten months of operation, I know. I want to know how you did that. I want to do ten months work and sell my company. <laughs> Yeah. In those first 10 months of operation, um, we tried to get a government contract. We were talking to the VA, not even knowing what the what the procurement process would look like. We were in conversations with them. And I would use this as an example that in the private sector, you can start and sell your company in the same amount of time. It'll take you to even get, you know, 10 percent through the government procurement cycle. And that's why that's today in the U.S., 70 percent, yeah, 70 percent of all federal contracts in the U.S. government go to the incumbent. And that's purely a symptom of the fact that there are really high, you know, kind of arbitrary barriers to entry. Things like how many yeah. years have you been in operation? Have you done government work before? You know, these aren't the right barriers to entry. So changing the barriers to entry, changing the requirements, changing, you know, the security authorization rules so that to be more cloud friendly. There's a lot that can be done that and we still have a long way to go. So government can actually partner with all of the innovative companies in the country and and kind of use them instead of building them themselves to Dan's point. Actually, you give me the brilliant segue to my last question, actually, which is perfect, which I said at the beginning of the podcast, I was going to ask Dan much to my very reluctantly, because I hate celebrating his success, but um, <laughs> he has created this amazing venture capital firm public, which has, in my view, kind of created a, um, a gov tech uh, sector in the UK. And in fact, he's taken it kind of international intensity now holds this uh, very ostentatious GovTech summit where he gets people like Macron to come and speak. Uh, and I think the Prime Minister Trudeau from Canada as well has spoken at the GovTech summit. So I'd love you both, starting with Dan, just to talk about, a bit about the private sector marketplace that's now being created. What are the kind of, you can either name specific companies or sectors or processes and trends that you're seeing. It's a very unfair question. Again, in a few minutes, what is the GovTech sector? How would you describe it at the moment? I mean, maybe I'll pick up. Um, thank you very much. Ed. It's very kind. Um, all <laughs> built on on the work that we did together. So you, you should take pleasure in some <laughs> limited success. But I think I think the thing to say is, you know, Victor Hugo, the French author, said, you know, it's very hard to stop an idea whose time has come. And I, to me, it was just obvious 
that after people had transformed retail and advertising, insurance and financial services, they would turn themselves to, you know, what in some countries is more than 50% of GDP, like a massive market that really matters. And if you can get in with it, you can earn a lot of money and do good at the same time. Who wouldn't want to do that in this day and age? So to me, it was natural. And what we've seen in the UK is uh, a couple of things. Massive explosion in health tech. And prior to COVID as well, you know, great companies from uh, Pando, which helps with uh, with messaging between clinicians, Eva, which, which is trying to transform... GP software, uh, to companies that are working with drones in order to ensure medical delivery. So we've had a massive explosion in health tech. And partly that's down also to Matt Hancock, the health secretary's you know, passion and interest in the subject. We've also seen quite a growth in sort of security tech, if you will, you know, defense, intelligence, security, various things, policing. So that's been a really interesting base. And, and I, I would say the third is we've seen a lot of various local government-focused technology innovation both in the UK, companies like Novaville, uh, but also Zen City, an Israeli company that's done interesting work in the UK. So we've seen sort of local government or regional government drawing in uh, great innovative startups. So so those markets are those that have been particularly uh, exciting in, in, in the UK. And Fedor, what, what do you see in the US? Similar kind of trends? I definitely see the trends at Dancy's, but I also see that GovTech is no longer GovTech. It's just tech. Right. So I think in the past we created companies, tech companies for government. I'd like to see a world where government just uses the same tech companies that the financial sector and the healthcare sector do and where there isn't that differentiation. And GovTech is no longer a word. It's just commercial tech that can also be used in government. And the government is open to that and understands how to leverage it. And one of the areas you both haven't mentioned is ed tech, education technology. Is that not surely a sector that's going to take off massively? So just on the, from my perspective, it, it's obviously become the hot button topic as every parent has now had to homeschool their children and are discovering <laughs> the joys and frustrations with the existing platforms. But, but the truth is that until now, in the UK, it hasn't been the sort of exciting sector one would have thought it would uh, have become. Partly, I, I think the finger of blame needs to lie at, at the DfE, you know, which hasn't until now been sort of leading the charge in the same way that, that the Department for Health has. And partly it's because I think there's a tradition, there has been lots of poor experiences with innovation in the classroom, which has made people, particularly teachers, very jaded. But I do hope, and we do see some signs of this, that the, that the remote learning experience we're all going through, and I use the word experience to cover everything from joy to pain and frustration, and sitting in it myself, <laughs> will we'll make a difference because because it's obvious that technology can offer, if not a replacement, at least enormous support to the educational process. So I think uh, this has been a great discussion and thank you both very much indeed. I mean, I do think that the lessons we all draw, I think, from the pandemic is kind of who were the fourth emergency services? And it was companies, dare I say it, like Amazon uh, and Zoom that kind of made sure that we could get the stuff that we needed and do the work that we needed to do. And I think government, certainly from my perspective in the UK, has made great strides. I mean, we can at least get a lot of the essential documents we need online. But it is the great revolution that's waiting to happen. But it's not a kind of partisan revolution. And that's perhaps why it doesn't get the attention it deserves. It's really boring, massively important work that would dramatically reduce uh, the cost of government and dramatically enhance the experience of citizens in every country. Fingers crossed. I think, Fedra, you've given me 
enormous optimism that the Biden administration is going to tackle this. And Dan, neither of you are, of us are in the British administration, but we do. You have at least given me the indication that there are green shoots coming. Let's hope so. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Ed. Thanks for listening to this episode of Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.